those bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege, this honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us a unity that is given to us by faith. Father, we know that it is your will to grace us out each and every day, motivated by your love, of course. For these things, we're so very grateful. May we never become familiar with them. Father, we're so grateful for each and every day that we have together to fellowship, to be set free by this truth. Father, we pray also for those that can't be with us this morning. We desire that they be back in the fold with us. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost without Christ in this world, that you humble them by whatever means necessary so that we might evangelize them, if not personally, just to enjoy their company in heaven forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a time of rejoicing. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, the Lord is our confidence. We've been on this series now, obviously, for 16 parts, including today. Uh, I want to begin with something that occurred to me in my studies uh, yesterday morning because I've been getting some feedback in, on uh, the lessons and the blogs, because uh, they're not always easy. They're, sometimes they're very challenging. And all I can tell you from a shepherd's perspective is that is absolutely by design. So go to 2 Corinthians 12, 14. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. I think every so often the Spirit just sort of you know, gathers around the campfire, so to speak, and has us think about things outside of the lesson that are precipitated, of course, by the lesson, but um, just sort of remind us of some key things uh, in a church like ours. Second Corinthians twelve fourteen. So Paul's writing this to the Corinthians, as I've noted in the past, uh, and I think most of you agree, the Corinthians are a really good reflection of American uh, Christianity today. Uh, verse 14, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. That's Paul's heart. That's the heart of a shepherd. He's not after them. He didn't want any kind of sordid gain. He wasn't looking for, you know, uh, to be puffed up or anything like that. He said, I do not seek what is yours, but you. That's the end goal. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents. Remember all the work we've been doing on fathers and that uh, the post of a, a pastor is a father type uh, in the Bible. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And that's that dynamic that I think is difficult for every shepherd that's doing his job, any real shepherd that is in the faith, 
If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So let me make a statement here. And this has been coming out with these lessons on uh, fatherhood and parenting and just being a good parent. Here's the statement, and I've said it in the past. It's much, not kind of, much more difficult to be a good parent than even a marginal one. Much more difficult, and certainly, of course, a bad one. I was thinking, I'm a math geek, so I, think, I was thinking about it. It's almost asymptotic, if you know what that means. It basically means that to be a better parent in the beginning requires, say, you know, this amount of effort. To be a better parent from there to here requires this much effort. And to be a better parent way over here, when you're getting close to what we might call perfection, which is impossible, but when you're getting really close, it's this hard. Do you know what I'm saying? Because now you're in the weeds. You're, it's in, you're in the minutia of parenting. You, you have to pay attention to every little detail with your children. And so it's really difficult to be a good parent, uh, much more even than just a marginal one. So a note on difficulty, difficulty, as it pertains to these messages as of late, and even my blogs, because some of them, the last few have been difficult. This last week's um, was difficult, I, I thought, anyways. Um, so this idea of difficulty has been coming up. Over the past year or so, some of you have intimated, and I totally appreciate this, by the way, so please don't stop. Um, some of you have intimated that you've struggled with understanding certain topics that I've taught from this pulpit. And here's my response, one word, good. No, really, good. I don't want you to be in the dark, but it's good that you've faced the challenge and you've at least come to the forefront and said, hey, you know what? Um, hey, this just crashed, by the way. Yep. You know what? I'm having a difficult time with uh, the lessons as of late, and I applaud that. Are you working on it back there, Todd? I applaud that. So again, a note on difficulty. I'm being distracted already, if you can't see. Again, some of you have intimated that you've struggled with understanding certain topics that I've taught from this pulpit. My response, honestly, is good. That's the point. That's why they're challenging subjects. Here's the point that the Spirit wants to make, I believe. I'm not here to do your work for you. Does that make sense? I'm not here to do your work for you. What I can tell you and what I really want you to know is this. I know when you're confused. It's not like I'm like up here going, la, 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 la. I'm just going to use big words and pontificate and wax poetic. And who cares about the sheep? You know, I don't look at you. I don't look at your body language. I don't look at your faces. I don't look at any kind of consternation that kind of washes over when a challenging message is before you. Oh, when I'm trying to weave some things together, I call it connective tissue. Um, and I can see your face sort of, you know, draining a little bit. Uh, I see it, trust me. So trust me when I say, I know when you're confused. And all I can tell you is, it's by design. Okay? I've been doing this for over a decade now. And a lot of you know that I taught uh, in high tech for 20 years. 
Like I, a lot of times I would travel to other countries and teach people about very, very, very technical products. So I understand body language and my audience very, very well. But I've been in this post for over 10 years now. Don't you think I understand when a certain topic is going to make people stop in their tracks and scratch their head? What do you think? I know when I'm writing the message that that's exactly what's going to happen. Of course I know. That's part of my job. It's part of my discernment. It's part of the spiritual gift. And just so you understand the kinds of conversations I have with the Spirit as I'm putting these messages together, when I'm struck with the definite possibility that some of you are going to walk away from a message or even a blog a little confused, and for example, the blog, this past week's blog was titled A Cold Shell of Obedience. To me, that requires more than one read. To me, there was some difficulty in there. When I'm struck with this notion, I always ask the Spirit, should I slow my roll here? Should I, you know, back off? Should I slow down the pace? Should I spend more time explaining every last detail every minute tendril, let's call it, of connective tissue. Should I slow down? His answer is evident in the messages and the blogs. Um, if they're easy, he said, no, not necessary. If they're difficult or challenging, whatever. Sometimes he answers, yes, slow down. But he often resoundingly says, no. Listen, please listen, because this is the kind of conversation I have with the Spirit. I have these conversations. I don't mean I don't talk out loud and Tammy's sitting there going, who's he talking to? I don't do that. Uh, sometimes I do. I usually talk out loud to the demons and tell them to... That's true. I used to spin around my chair and say hello with a certain finger. Isn't that awful? That's your pastor. I used to, but I'm too lazy. I'm too old, I guess. I don't even, I'm too lazy to spin around and tell them where to go. Anyways, I digress. Sometimes he answers yes, sometimes he answers a resounding no. These people need to get off their own duffs, quit complaining, and or looking for shortcuts to spiritual growth, and dig their heels in. He says, let them be a little confused. You ready? Why? It is a test. It's a test. Let them be a little confused. I don't want them overwhelmed, you know, drowning. But let them be a little confused. Let their soul be a little agitated, a little challenged, a little confounded. Let them be in that condition because it's a test. It could be revealing some lackadaisical behavior from before. It could be revealing, hey, I need to get back into this because I'm like falling behind even. I don't know how some of, I'm assuming some of you actually do this. You only get this, this message in a week. I don't know how you keep up, but that's between you and the Lord. Nonetheless, if you're a little confused, I can tell you this. It's a test. Nowhere in the Bible does it imply that simple means lazy. There's a reason why the Bible teaches us that we must do the labor diligently diligently remember present tense active voice it means it's you all the time 
You have to do this labor diligently. So from my perspective, here's what I can tell you. It's not my job to spoon feed you. It's not my job to spoon feed you. I do the very best I can, honest to goodness. Very best I can. I prepare, I work hard for you, I prepare the lessons, I, I, I'm just telling you, I, get, I, I, I ask him for guidance, am I going too fast, am I going too slow? He sets the pace. It's not my job to spoon feed you. As it is, I've got Scott showing up faithfully on Tuesday evenings with bibs and airplane spoons. That was a joke. You know, remember when you were a little kid? Nobody? I'm a champ, Bib. No, nobody. I love Dad. I love Mom, whichever one's in the room, right? Whoever's feeding, you know. I'm not saying that to be offensive to Scott at all. He does a wonderful job. Amen? All right, that's enough. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But really, that's his job, to review, which is why I don't understand. It's it, like Typically, it's the smallest crowd. I'm like, man, I must have a really bright crowd. Because hardly anybody shows up on Tuesdays. I must have a wicked smart crowd to be Massachusetts, right? Wicked smart. As we've been learning from this pulpit, our part in our own sanctification is to seek diligently. I can't be the only one, and thankfully I'm not, obeying this command. I can't be, the pastor cannot be the only one doing all the work. In other words, again, it's not my job to spoon feed you all the answers. One of the biggest favors anyone can give you as a trainer is to give you just enough information to confound you for a time, to, to stretch you. If this is your base of operation, well, let's go one step further. Is this a gray area? Probably. But what if I just kept teaching the same thing over and over again? And then I ramped up our music ministry, you know, like a lot of churches do. Let's just come in and sing 67 verses of Kumbaya. I'll teach a little antidote about my cat or my dog, somehow relate it back to Jesus and say, aren't you happy now? Aren't you, isn't your belly filled? Don't you feel good about yourself? Because God knows I didn't challenge you. One of the biggest favors any training can do is give you just enough information to confound you for a time. So I was thinking about an analog just to drive this home. Suppose you take, and some of you are like, no. Suppose you take a mathematics class at Bristol Community College. So you're like, no way. Never. But suppose you do that thing. I have two scenarios. Scenario number one, the instructor really doesn't care about educating you. So what he does is, in, in uh, educator terms, he teaches to the test, essentially giving you examples exactly like those on a test. So that's called teaching to the test. Even though his superiors say, you know, wow, your students have good test scores, and the students walk away with inflated grade point averages, What's the truth of the matter? The students might as well have been monkeys or parrots, if that's less offensive to you. 
at least the latter don't find human in, humor in throwing certain things at each other when caged together. Man, my jo- I'm stopped telling any jokes this morning. You guys are way too serious. I meant luggage. Have you ever been to a zoo? You know what the monkeys throw at each other? All right. Oh, Diane, thanks for joining the, cl- the club yet. <laughs> thanks for catching up. All right, so that's scenario number one. That guy doesn't care. That doesn't care. Have you ever, all, I could just teach, I could just say, hey, okay, guys, ready? This is yellow. Okay, it's going to be on the test. And I go like this, on the test. What color is this? Then I say, well, what color is this? You say, I have no idea. You only taught us this. So you better only test us this. And everybody gets an A because everybody says it's yellow, just like you said. People do that all the time. Those are terrible teachers. They're not interested in, in you growing as a student. Not at all. They want to get in, get out. Scenario number two, the instructor cares deeply about your education. He doesn't perseverate on grades. He only does whatever is necessary to ensure you grasp the concepts. Whatever is necessary. So instead of teaching to the test, he teaches you how to think on your own. And when he tests you, he tests for your grasp of concepts, not whether or not you can parrot examples he's already shown you on the blackboard. What's the difference here? In the prior example, you had puffed up, lied to, unequipped disciples. In the latter example, you had humble, equipped students that were challenged instead of spoon-fed. And the result was glorious. You had real disciples equipped for service. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Go to Ephesians 4.11. I often think about why it is you turn to your left and your right and you see so many Christians, at least they say they're Christians, you know, maybe they even go to a, quote, so-called Christian church, and they have no idea how to function in this world. They're insecure. They've got all kinds of anxiety they're dealing with. You know why? Chances are they're either lazy, which really precludes anybody from helping them out, or they were misinformed. Someone was was poorly teaching them. Someone taught them or just taught to the test. The problem is the test isn't the same for everyone. You're going to go home, there's going to be a different set of tests for you waiting, awaiting you. I'm going to go home, there's going to be different ones. So and so and so forth. We don't have the same test. We have to understand the concepts here. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for what? The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We are not, no offense to anybody that's in a union, but you know what I'm saying. I'm picking up. We're not union workers here. You know, I think the worst case of that I've ever heard was some guy's job at the fishing docks. Literally, this was his union job. This is all he did was take that big rope when the big ships come in and tie it around the anchor on the dock. And that was it. He didn't do anything else. Something needed to be moved. It's not my job. I'm the rope guy. How many of you do that for a living? How many of you are going to go home and have the exact same problems I'm going to have? You have to be equipped for service 
Look at verse 12 again. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, you see, as a result of good teaching, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Up here on the board, equipping the saints. It's not a pastor's job to spoon feed his sheep. I may have to coddle you a little bit, and I, I do the best I can, but it's not my job to spoon feed you. It's his job to push them to, quote, work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12, part B. Often challenging them with, quote, difficult messages. What would we be doing? How would you be growing if there's never a challenge? Think of the gym. If all you do, you go in the gym and you literally just grab the, the empty bar and do this for 10 years straight, nothing's going to happen. No, you, don't, you don't gain muscles like these ones. <laughs> finally, finally, jeez. You don't going to gain any muscles, right? You actually have to put more weight on and more weight and on more. So you actually grow. So you strain your muscles so that they tear a little bit. That's what happens under the covers, so that they tear and the body builds it up a little bigger for next time. It's the same thing I have to do with you. I have to tear you down a little bit. I don't want to crush you, but tear you down, tear you, push you back a little bit and say, hey, you know, you don't know everything. You don't have your little box, your little tidy box is not filled. And so you, now you can start, you know, skipping out on the grace of God. I have to challenge you with difficult messages. The true test lies with the disciple, not the teacher. Please learn this. I'm doing my job. You're here because I'm doing my job. All right, so that's behind us. What's left? You. The test is not whether or not I'm doing my job. That's between me and the Lord. If you don't think I'm doing my job, go somewhere else. That's what I've told you for 10 years now, honestly, and I want you to do that thing. But if you think I'm doing my job, then the onus is back on you. The test is with you. Learn that. This passage referred, uh, referenced in Philippians 2 is so perfect for our message this morning that we need to read it in its greater context. Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. <clears throat> I just want to show you a little bit more. Philippians 2.12. I mean, isn't that like a waste of time? Why go to the gym? That's so funny. It's so funny. Some people go to the gym to, to eat smoothies and pizza. Isn't that like the new thing? 
and you can't grunt and groan anymore because you get grunt and groan at like some of these gyms you get thrown out. Like for real. If you're like, oh, they're like, you out. We don't do that here. We drink smoothies and eat pizza and we don't make fun of anybody. And we have these, I think it's the one with the purple machines. We have purple machines and if you grunt once, you're out, mister. There's no training. There's no real training going on in here. It's just pretend training. That's what's going on right now across the country in so-called Christian churches. Many and many, 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 many of them. So-called training happening, but nothing's really going on. They're eating pizza and smoothies. And nobody's growing because no one's challenging them. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look at verse 14. And I dedicate this to those of you who are grumbling maybe a little bit even right now. Do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. For example, stop mumbling under your breath that your pastor hasn't made things easier for you. Sometimes I get that sense. Like, why is it, you know, why does he make things a little easier for us? Stop mumbling. Stop grumbling. Again, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Again, the point on the board regarding equipping the saints, it's not a pastor's job to spoon feed his sheep. It's his job to push them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, often challenging them with difficult messages. The true test lies with the disciple, not the teacher. If that's too, just for a moment, if that's too deep for you, if that, you know, that's kind of a lot of words right there. If that's too deep for you, allow me to spoon feed you for the sake of comparison. <laughs> Up here on the board. Give a man a fish and he eats for a day. Teach a man how to fish and he eats for a lifetime. Now, it's funny because immediately some of you probably said, See? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Not that long thing on the gray slide. The fancy orange slide with a secular proverb on it. Nice and easy. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Play a little music. Put that up there. Guy talks about his cat. Life is good. We got some deviled eggs back there. Maybe not today. Maybe not today. Or whatever Alice made. Such a healthy display of... That's what I'm talking about. Right? I'm talking about right there. And if that was you, even a little bit, you kind of like that, a little bit. You just revealed your own laziness to yourself, preferring a secular proverb over key principles spelled out in Holy Scripture. 
Here's the truth. It's a tough one to swallow. People are lazy. I'm not going to lie. I can get lazy too, so I'm not talking down to you. I'm just saying we're, by nature, lazy. Our flesh is lazy. Man's laziness likes to, you know, move the needle. If it's balanced, you know, you know the old balance scales? There was a needle in the middle that was perpendicular to the scales, and that's how they knew, and it would be a little scale up there, and it would be zeroed out if things were equal. They like to put little, they like to move the needle. Say, well, I'm a little lazy, so I want the other guy in the equation to do a little bit more work. Now the needle's pointing towards the other guy. Well, who's the other guy? Me. Man's laziness likes to move the needle in the shepherd-sheep relationship so that the shepherd is demanded more of while the sheep increases in laziness. That's why so many sheep prefer distilled secular proverbs over biblical ones that force them to think or even research for answers. You know, seek diligently, a la Matthew 7.7. Again, Man's laziness likes to move the needle in the shepherd-sheep relationship so that the shepherd is demanded more of while the sheep increases in laziness. It's why so many sheep prefer distilled secular proverbs over biblical ones that force them to think or even research for answers, which would comprise seeking diligently. I wouldn't be doing my job as unto the Lord if all I did was distill the Bible into edible bite-sized chunks. I know I have to do that but there's always a purpose behind it. But I wouldn't be doing my job if that's all I ever did. My job, you ready? My job is to get you to taste the truth. This, look, folks, when, I'm never going to teach all this to you. I can't. There's not enough time in the day. All I do is I go like this, you ready? Imagine this is a the most succulent meal of all time, and I go like this. Here, taste how about, this, how about this course? Course number two, taste this pot. And then how about we taste this pot? That's my job. I say taste it. Taste the truth. It's your job to dig out the rest of the meal. It's your job to dig out the rest of the meal. If I stand at the front porch with uh, an apple pie and I say, hey, here's a spoonful, and you... You know, you're so busy out there. You come by, you grab it, you're like, ooh, that was good, and you run off. And then I have some steak, and you get one little bit of steak, and you take it and run off. You know what you're going to be? Emaciated. You actually have to come in and dine. You have to come in and finish the meal. My job is to get you to taste the meal. Your job is to finish the meal, or else you'd be like the person who just swings by, grabs a bite to eat, and too busy and leaves and never eats and ends up rail thin, emaciated, malnutritioned, etc., etc. There's a lot of malnutritioned Christians out there. And I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Because anybody comes, people come to messages like this and say, oh, that was scrumptious. That was really good. And then they don't finish the meal. They don't spend any time in prayer. They don't spend any time thinking about it. They don't spend any time fellowshipping. The right way, a lot of people go right back to the world and they fellowship with the world because their, friend, their, their best friends in this world are from the world. 
not of Christ. And so they're just grabbing little bits and pieces. When I teach you a challenging message or even a blog, I'm being a good parent. When I teach you anything that challenges you, I'm actually being a good parent up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, part B said what? If I love you more, am I to be loved less? If I love you more, am I to be loved less? In other words, if I work even harder, and trust me, the real difficulty of being a shepherd is not actually the gathering together of the, of the messages. It's the shepherding part. It's dealing with the back pressure. Do you understand? The back pressure of you. That's the hardest part of being a shepherd. Knowing right now some of you are spitting venom at me. Not so much this morning, but let's say it was like one of those really hard ones. You know, I started talking about something near and dear to your hearts. You guys would be like, <laughs> right? If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Think about this in very practical terms for a moment. And I say what I'm about to say with all due respect for the amount of time and energy it takes me to create a message like this one. It's more than you might think. I think about these messages all week long. Tammy can attest to that. I sit down in my recliner, I drink my coffee, and I send myself emails as I'm reading the Bible. And it'll literally say in the title of the email, for Sunday, colon, the passage, maybe with some thoughts. Or for the blog, passage with some thoughts. These messages are comprised over the whole week. I don't just sit down for a few hours on a Saturday morning, you know, and be like, woo! No, he's on me all the time. And it's blended. So think in very practical terms, and I say what I'm about to say with all due respect to all of what I just described. Think about the simple fact that I have you for a little over two hours per week. That's it. And if you add in Scotch Review classes on Tuesday, you might say that you get about three hours or so each week from this pulpit. There are 168 hours in a week. 168. And we're talking about three. That's 165 hours that you aren't in front of this pulpit. And that's assuming you even receive every message. Some of you are like, yeah, it's kind of more like 167 for me. Or 166. Or 168. Of course, you wouldn't be here right now. But you know what I'm saying. The ratio, 1.7 to 98.3. That's the ratio. 1.7 to 98.3. At most... You are in front of this pulpit about 1.7% of your life. Think about that. A little over 1% of your life. Kind of leaves a lot of time elsewhere, does it not? Now, if we remove the Tuesday reviews, within that measly 1.1%, your pastor's got your attention. He has to try to affect you in a maximum way. So let's just round it down, shall we? I have you 1% of your life. 
and I have to try to affect you in a maximum way. And here's my job, as per Paul, 2 Timothy 4.2 up here on the board. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's my job. The great patience part is for me, by the way. It means I have to wait around until you do your job as unto the Lord. I have to wait around until you do your job as unto the Lord. I'm never going to do as Paul commanded if I distill everything and leave you with nothing that ever challenges or stretches your mind. If I just give you a bunch of proverbs, you know, even if I make up my own and they're all, you know, quippy and nice and everybody's like, oh, that, oh, my, oh, that was so wise. You know, people do that thing with their fingers. Nobody? I'm the only weirdo. Oh, that was so, so quippy. You know? And it's like, you know, they're like, when they say it, their pinky's sticking out like this. He's such a bright fella. And you're lazy. Happy Sunday morning. Look, I'm not going to do as Paul commanded, as the Bible commands me, if I distill everything and I never challenge you. You are on a complete transformational journey. Have you forgotten so soon after your salvation? Up here on the board in the Amplified, Romans 12, 2 reads, And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourselves even what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. Have we forgotten that? I want to do such a good job as your pastor that you literally fear not seeking the truth as a way of life. That's my goal. If I was to die tomorrow, honestly, my greatest accomplishment is you is that most of you are reading your Bibles regularly now. It's not because Pastor Ed Collins is such a wise man and he was so well read that, you know, he used to wax poetic and oh, he's just tickle my spine. Right? That's not it at all. I could literally die tomorrow. And I'm convinced that God would say, you got them reading their Bibles. Amen? That's the most beautiful thing I can possibly give you, is to lead you to that one thing. So that's my goal. I want to do such a good job that you literally fear not seeking the truth as a way of life. You know that feeling, that fear you get, like when you move away from something good, you're like, ah, oh, i got to get back there. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like when you step off over a cliff. Like, oh, right? That's what I want. I want you to fear the Lord with every fiber of your being. Why? So you can be scared at night in bed, wondering how the wrath of God will befall you otherwise? Of course not although that truth is ever present to the arrogant. If you want, or I want you to fear 
the Lord, again, with every fiber of your being. I want you to fear the Lord so that He alone becomes the source of all your confidence. The title of the series is The Lord is Our Confidence, right? What do you think my job then is in this series? To lead you in that direction. I want you to fear Him and Him alone so that He is the only true source of your confidence in this world. Like Paul wrote, put no confidence in the flesh, right? As soon as you do that, you've opened yourself up. I want you to fear him. But here's the thing, and this is maybe the most frustrating thing about this position, I can't make you fear him. I can only teach the precepts out of the Bible, guiding you, encouraging you, challenging you, etc. And it's with these precepts and doctrines that God the Holy Spirit is able to work out your experiential sanctification. But here's the key to all of this. What's the key to the spiritual life? There you go. That's the key. So you just took my notes. I can want all that. God the Holy Spirit certainly wants all that for you. But you have to show up. And like I taught, what was it, last Sunday, maybe the Sunday before? Even if you show up crawling, that's better than not showing up at all. So you had a bad week, and you had a bad day, you had a bad morning. Look at poor Andrea down here. Are you comfortable? She's like, why are you doing this to me? She's pregnant, (laughs) right? She's pregnant. Sometimes not comfortable, right? Just saying. She might not be comfortable. So she crawls in here in like her eighth month, and she's like, oh, my. My bladder is like going to blow out of the side over here. The kid's going crazy in there, right? The head is like this big already. Just saying, I've got bets. I'm taking bets. Joey and Andrea, mm. head's going to be like a cantaloupe. Maybe watermelon. Just saying. You might show up in a poor condition, but you know what? Just show up. Here's the beauty about showing up. You ready? Here's a, here's a news flash. We care. The rest of us. You might get half of 1% out of it. I don't recommend that, but you might get a half of 1%. But the fact that you're there, everybody around you is encouraged. Does that make sense? Nobody wants to be a soldier with no one around. And the enemy's looking at you going, you're all alone. I know, this sucks. Right? At least have somebody there. Hmm. So you have to show up in humility. This is the renewing of your mind Paul wrote about in Romans 12, 2. I want to use another example. Um, We've got communion service today, and we're going to sing Amazing Grace afterwards, so I don't want to go too long. I want to use another example, though, of the life of David. Before we go to our key passage in Psalms with David, I want to grab a little background context for amplification's sake. Go to 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. Maybe one of the worst things that can happen to a dad is when his son turns on him. And this is what happened to David. His own blood, his own kid turned on him. Second Samuel 15, verse 10. <clears throat> So this is just for the sake of context. We're not going to 
do much other than read it. 2 Samuel 15.10, But Absalom, King David's own son, conspired against his father. Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. Now, can you possibly have a, a, more, a, a more humble person at the helm than David? And look how fickle people are. Look at how fickle people are. And look at his own son conspiring against the king. Verse 13, Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. So that's our context. David conceded that Israel had turned their backs on him as their king, preferring an unholy person, a conspirator, his own son, nonetheless, which is grotesque. That alone, like, wouldn't you say, hey, wait a minute, aren't you, like, turning against your own father? I don't like that about you as a person. No, they just said, oh, whatever. <laughs> Without getting too much further into the context, let's read the corresponding key passage. Go to Psalm 3, 1. Psalm 3, picking up the tail end. We read this over the past couple of weeks. Psalm 1 through 3. Got a lot of the fear of the Lord out of it. Appear in the board. So that's the context. David's own son was conspiring against him. David conceded. And this correlates. This is his heart during that time. Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, Salah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the one who lifts my head. You see David's attitude? It never wavered. Do you see it? It never wavered. The same Lord that made him king is the same one that he's talking to about being essentially conspired against, to be dethroned. So not only did he have confidence when God promoted him, he has confidence now. Not only in good times, in other words, but bad. Where was David's confidence at this time? Is it or was it any difference or any different than when he, David, was the cause of ungodliness? Remember we took the census and when he did that thing to Uriah the Hittite, the whole nine yards, he had someone killed basically. Who did he turn to? The Lord. 
Now he's being attacked against. You might argue unfairly, whatever. Who's he turned to? The Lord. In each and every circumstance, because he fears the Lord, his confidence is in the Lord. That has to be us. We don't just come to church when we need God. We don't just read our Bibles or get down on our knees when we need Him for something that we perceive as necessary. Oh, don't worry about this one, God. You go take care of the bazillion other people in the world. I got this covered. That's a fracture of what the Bible teaches us about where our confidence should be. Our confidence, like David's, needs to be in every circumstance in life. So is David's confidence any different than when he was the cause of ungodliness? No. You see, the fear of the Lord, which instills confidence in us, is a ubiquitous reality, not a lopsided one. We abide in the, I like to call it, the sphere of confidence. Right? That we're in the sphere of it. It's not unidimensional. It's not just on occasion. It's becoming of us. It's our confidence is rooted. We are rooted in the Lord. Good, bad, or ugly. We're the fault, they're the fault. Doesn't matter. Blessing, cursing, doesn't matter. Our confidence is in the Lord because He's perfect and He's righteous and He's good. As a shepherd, as I was reading that, I didn't even pick this up when I was studying for this. I'm speculating, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is true. David was leaving. You might say, why? Wasn't David a warrior? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bears, lions, Goliath, remember? But yet it seemed like he was conceding the land. In my opinion, he probably was doing it for the land. He said, if I stay, you're all going to get slaughtered. If I leave, at least you'll be spared for another day when you can repent. You follow? That's a, sometimes that's a shepherd's heart. I, do, I live with that all the time in little microcosm ways. People do something stupid and I go, you know what? That's a, that's a bad decision you're making right now, but I have to walk away because if I stay, there's going to be carnage everywhere. It's not just going to be you, the moron, that suffers. It's going to be you, your family, your extended family, the church. So I'm going to walk away even though I'm right in staying. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to, I'm going to let the Lord fight that battle in your soul so you can repent from it in due time. Because if I stay, it's going to be a, a war and there's going to be carnage. So we abide in a sphere of confidence, which means that every situation in life is passed through the lens of confidence and fear of the Lord. Every thought we have is affected then. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. Remember the context here, what was going on. This would have been very heavy. This is his own son, his own people, turning against him. And he answered me from his holy mountain, Salah. And that's a sound of rest. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Isn't that beautiful? The, my enemies surround me. And what does he do? I lay down and I slept. Sounds like Jesus in the bow. 
right? I lay down and I slept. I awoke, for why? For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Salah. And then I want to continue with chapter 4. We, we only got the 3 last time around. Let's continue just to get a little bit more here. Now that you see David's heart and what's going on, you have the context. Verse 1, answer me, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Salah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. And here it is. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. As I've taught in the past couple of weeks, you know that the fear of the Lord promotes security. The world never teaches you that. The world teaches you always that fear is always negative. Fear is always bad. Not in the Bible. Not righteous fear. Fear of the Lord builds security. And when you're secure in Him, for better or worse, blessing or cursing, because He's righteous, when you have that confidence in Him, you dwell in safety. That's David's example. Isn't it beautiful? His own son was conspiring against him, against the king. And this was his attitude. So I'm going to basically say it's yours, Lord. David's response to his son's conspiring against him was to turn to the Lord with conviction and confidence. You can actually, if you're, you know, quote, listening, you can actually hear David's voice crying out to the Lord. My friends, this is what true seeking looks like. This is what true seeking looks like. Not after you're exhausted. Not after, you know, you went fisticuffs with somebody, figuratively or literally, and you lost. And so you turn to the Lord for help. You know, like, I'm going to go get my big brother and he's going to beat you up. None of that. From the get-go, from the outset, it's about you and the Lord. You dwell in safety, in security, because you fear Him, because you have confidence in Him. And all of that, of course, is because you love Him. That's what true seeking looks like. It reminds me of the thief on the cross and the tax collector beating his chest for mercy. Up here on the board, this is from this past week. Seeking is an act of humility, born of a fear of the Lord. Why do you seek him? Because you know he's righteous and he's good. And you know that he can do pretty much 
Not pretty much. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I'm going to put my chips in with that guy. I'm going to go with him. My confidence is in him. And if, if my confidence is in him, what can me and man do to me, honestly? If he's the omnipotent one, I don't, even, I don't care if both my sons conspire against me. I'm going to the Lord. Seeking is an act of humility, born of a fear of the Lord. When your chips are down, you turn to the one you are most confident in. Is that fair? We have analogs in the world, don't we? When your chips are down, when you're down and out, you turn to the one that you're most confident in. Who's my best friend? Usually that can be the question asked. Who's my best friend? Who am I going to turn to when the chips are down? Who's going to support me, for better or worse? Right? Who's going to be my Jonathan to David? Who's going to, be, who's going to love me so much that they're going to tell me the truth? Who's that person? Well, look, folks, I'm a loser. I have no friends. I have nobody to call. Right here. Why was that not funny, by the way? Are there actually people in here that have no friends? Like, not one? Why are you not laughing? Laugh at me. There's no one you can call. Right here. This should be who you call, anyways. When your chips are down, you turn to the one you are most confident in. Isn't this what you do even in earthly matters? Aren't there those in your life who, if your chips are down, you call because you are confident in that you'll find them, that they'll be there for you? Yeah. That's a form of seeking. David was very good at seeking. I think I'm probably going to end shortly here. Yeah. David, if we've learned anything, David was very good at seeking. Good, he sought the Lord. Bad, he sought the Lord. He messed up, he sought the Lord. Other people are messing up, he sought the Lord. That's the whole sphere of fearing the Lord and having confidence in the Lord and dwelling in safety. That's why he said, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever, right? We read that this past week. Why? Because that's where his great security was, in the household of the Lord. So David was very good at seeking that goal, that thing. You know what? God is very good about answering. You know what the Bible calls God's response to seeking? One word, grace. Grace. I think I'll end up here. Up here on the board. Luke 11, 9 to 10. And DJ, you can start getting ready to come up. Billy, do you have to go back and help him out back there? All right. Luke 11, 9 to 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Any questions? Any questions? And he who seeks, what does it say? Finds. Any questions? And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We have the most gracious person 
in the history of the universe with us, ready for us, ready to receive us. We just have to be humble. We have to be like David in every circumstance. We fear the Lord. Our confidence is in the Lord. Our security is always with Him, not after, but at the outset. That's the beauty of God, and that's what we call grace. Amen? All right, I'm going to bring up uh, Deacon Johnson, and he's going to lead us in communion service. And then just remember, after communion service, uh, we're going to sing Amazing Grace, okay? So you guys can kill the slides if you like. Just... Thank you, gentlemen. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank Pastor Collins for the opportunity to lead the congregation today in the communion service. I was thinking about this this morning. What a privilege, privilege it is to be serving the Lord and his people this way. Very humbling. I took a drive this morning to gather some thoughts on what the Spirit wanted to give convey to his people today. As I lead the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the first thing we should do is take this very seriously and come to the Lord's table in a worthy way. So I ask myself, what is it to be worthy to come to the Lord's table? This starts with an honest recognition of sin. Sin in today's society is welcomed. So we are, what are we as followers of Christ to think of sin? Well, I thought of it this way. God has already provided this answer through grace. 
as we have just finished the series, The Deceitfulness of Sin, in its 74 parts, which I encourage everyone here to go to the website and study or restudy, whatever applies to you. And secondly, we as Christians, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to address the sin in our own lives, personally, and through grace, take care of it. Not to blame anyone, but ourselves for the sin that we have committed. The Bible states that the lust in our life, given an opportunity, always turns to sin. So we need to recognize the sin that we have committed. We need to acknowledge it and turn from it. And then in his grace, honor our Lord by serving and worshiping him as we are doing here this morning. Please remember true confession of sin is to take full responsibility for the sin in our own lives. And think of it this way. We are not victims of sin. We are the perpetrators of it. An environment does not make us sinners. We are born that way. So as we come to the table today, we need to turn from our sin and welcome the ability God has granted through grace to fellowship with him and others other like-minded believers and remember what Jesus did on the cross to make this possible. In Corinthians, the scripture states always to do this in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper is to be celebrated often because it's, ex- it's an expression of the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. No one is more worthy to be remembered than him in his person. So let us come and remember and proclaim and partake in the Lord's Supper. And immediately after closing prayer, there will be singing of amazing grace to further bring out the remembrance what God and his son has done for us on the cross. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11:23 States, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which you is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for the grace that you give us on a daily basis. What a privilege to be able to come before your throne of grace and celebrate the Lord's Supper 
in remembrance of your son and his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for giving your son's life on behalf of us and paying the enormous debt of our sin so that we may be forgiven and share in your son's abundant life. May we never forget the enormous price that was paid on our behalf. May we never forget that we have bought, we have been bought with a price. The price was the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we live for him and others, knowing that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Lord, let us remember as we leave here today to bring the good news of the gospel out to the dark places that we stumble across in life and give the light that you have supplied, the light of your truth, and let the Holy Spirit accomplish his work that needs to be done through the information that we give. Thank you, Father, for all that you do and all the grace and mercy and love. We pray all of this in your Son's precious name and through the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Bring up Scott and we'll let us...